Hello, and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown, and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day. Hi, Chris. Hi, Peter. So, December in the garden. Getting cold, isn't it, Chris? Bit nippy today, Peter. Yes, yeah, not... Nice to see all the leaves are sort of finally coming down off the trees. It's a really late season this year, isn't it? Most definitely, yes. And uh, it's just good to report that, yes, our uh, our bare root plants are finally uh, coming in from all the nurseries from from across the water and from our UK growers. Yes, it's been a real tricky season, and uh, but we're, we're back on track now, I think, which is good news. Yeah, because normally I'm just thinking sort of bare root and mail order starts to kick off, I always think, around sort of fireworks time. Mm, and normally. Sort of my, beginning in November but yeah this year well, well like you say three three weeks later than normal indeed and and the frosts of course are now welcome because obviously that moves everything on which of course for, for bare root is essential that we get them into into full dormancy before we can go out and and plant away that's it what's in the news at the moment right we've got quite a bit uh, to, to cover really well coming up Christmas is on the horizon, isn't it? It is. Yeah, there's I mean, yes from from what we're doing obviously everywhere and everywhere Christmas is definitely there. We we we're, we're doing the countdown, aren't we? Yeah, so for all those men out there who haven't quite yet got around to starting to think about yeah. it, we might need to move. I think so. And you know the, the you know the petrol station isn't the, the the last place you need to look. Garden centers have a lot more interesting plants and and things to buy for for those Christmas stockings and obviously to treat yourself. Definitely. I always think camellias are great and oh, yeah. such an I mean they're not a cheap plant, are they? And if you want to give a nice present, a camellia is a lovely present, I In, always think. But. Indeed. And, and hellebores, of course, they're starting to look really good at the garden centre. They've I, I walked past one yesterday and it's it was glistening and of course the our honeybees were enjoying a little little feed as well, which was really good to see, even though it was so cold. So Yeah, because yeah. even though most people think that sort of bees and wasps have all finished for the year, if the weather is warm enough it's certainly you can still see bees and bumblebees going out and i noticed um you sent me a link to an article recently about what might turn out to be native honeybees that have been found down in the grounds of blenheim palace haven't they that's right and this is really interesting because it's um it's, it's part of the uh, blenheim uh, basically their ancient woodlands they've been discovered and yep. uh, yeah and it is a particular form of rare forest honeybee so that yeah, because reading the article, I think that clearly they're suggesting that the the swarms aren't that big. I mean, normally a traditional honeybee setup will have maybe forty, fifty, sixty thousand bees in it in the height of summer, whereas this these groups are more twenty, ten, twenty thousand, and being smaller would mm. certainly indicate that yeah, they may well be a, a more native group. But I mean, fundamentally, there are. Lots of supposedly native bees in this country, and I you know, it talked about the fact that I was very hopeful to get some earlier this summer um, from a source over in Daventry, but unfortunately the graft didn't work, so I didn't get a new queen out of oh, it. So <laughs> our bees are still <laughs> more uh, sort of domestic bees than native bees, shall I say? But yeah, I, I think there are hopeful uh, sort of sources of the more native bees, and if they're gentler and kinder and less aggressive i think that's all good mm. for the bee population as a whole isn't it In, indeed most definitely uh, the, the other thing which the article sort of mentions that one of the nests they uh, they found uh, was at least 200 years old yeah which is just incredible isn't it so yeah well with no, bees they we often see them when they're swarming which is basically when they're reproducing and the queen bee will have laid mm. a whole load of eggs and she takes the first load of 
bees out and goes off to find a new home and, and make a new nest, and that's essentially how they breed. So the other thing that happens with with that is quite often something called supersedure, where the queen will just lay one or two queen eggs, and the dominant baby will then take over the hive and essentially keep it going. So potentially any beehive that is left on its own in a lot of situations will just continue by itself it possibly won't be as productive honey wise as if it's a managed colony but certainly in nature bee populations do survive without any interaction with humans so there's a good chance that yeah there there could well be a 200 300 year old hive that's great news and then just literally locally to us here at the the garden center which is is even more uh, encouraging as well Mm, without a doubt i'm going to make some more investigations into that subject and it's national poncetia day it is yes that's um traditionally obviously it is a bit of an american day but so i think something we celebrate at the garden center here we do put some sort of signs out and we do wave the flag for our wonderful christmas plant which of course is the poinsettia yeah because that's 12th of december isn't it it is yeah yeah. where do poinsettias come from chris yeah, so they are a native of Mexico. Okay, because so. it's not a flower, is it? It's just a leaf that changes. That's correct. So, yeah, it's what they call um, a bract. So it's a, modif- okay. a modified leaf. And then, of course, the centre of the, the poinsettia has those little yellow flowers, which obviously open and, and um, sort of disappear quite quickly. And, of course, when you're purchasing your, your poinsettias at this time here, when you're going down to the garden centre, it's always worth, if you can, make sure those, those flower buds are in place or intact. Okay. Or, or quite small, because then you know that the plant's quite young. Um, right. So it's almost like a, a form of uh, ageing, if you like, for the poinsettia plant. You know that it's a youngster and it's going to have a, a longer shelf life on your window ledge. Okay, because do the leaves, they, as they get older, they change back to being green, do they? Or Yeah, what sort of happens is you get um, the, the, the bracts obviously form, and that can be yellow pale cream red sort of orange now and there's even pink varieties and yeah because yeah, yeah, historically red. they always used to be red they did. like you say now there's the all the sort of cream varieties that you see and a bit different bit i different. prefer the red ones Most personally but yeah yeah traditionalists will go for the red uh, and obviously different shades and sort of wavy patterned uh, bracts as well but yes the what usually happens in the spring or after christmas is you get new leaves forming in the middle which of course then become green okay and then obviously the plant continues to grow but the thing we point says is if you want to get it into producing that bloom of new bracts for next December. You, yep. know, you, you have to be quite, quite, uh, quite drastic with the, the secateurs, and you have to prune the plant back quite harsh to get all new growth from from the base of the plant. Just like you would if you were putting a good old hedging plant in or a young little fruit tree, you've got to try and create a framework of stems during the summer of 2022 to get yourself some really nice bracts for for next Christmas. Okay, and are you looking, you say cut it back really hard, are we talking sort of in half, are we talking even more drastic than that? Or I would say yes, take it back down by probably two thirds, so you're leaving a third. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, so, so really take all of the red growth off mm. and get it right back to those basal sort of yep. sprouts and shoots and then it'll yeah. come through. And is it to do with the sort of lighting hours that make them go red or is it, it just the time of year and... They, um, Poinsettias flower on naturally uh, on low light days, so that's why the flowers or the bracts initiate during the the autumn months. So that's okay. why when you try and maybe re- try to rebract your plant at home, artificial lighting 
will obviously affect the plant. So uh, the traditional way is uh, from September, you put the plant in a dark spot at 4 p.m. in the afternoon and you take it out at 8 a.m. in the morning. And you do that basically right through the month of uh, probably October, early November. And then, of course, that will then initiate. And what happens is the top of the plant goes very pale in colour, quite an almost chlorotic green. Right. Chlorotic green then becomes the colour of the the brat. It's quite a clever little trick. And, of course, commercially they use, um, in the greenhouses, they'll put a, what they call a, 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 like a thermal blanket will come across the plants in the evening, a thermal screen. Yep. And that will then obviously keep the heat in, but also keep the light out. Because, ah, uh, obviously, okay. things like street lights can obviously affect poinsettias. They're very sensitive plants are, are poinsettias. Okay, so if you've got a nice warm airing cupboard, or not, mm. uh, not a warm one, but a, a, yep. a sort of house temperature airing yep. cupboard... Um, Putting and it away yeah. and dark, uh, put it away in the yeah. late afternoon and bring it out the next morning. Yeah, and it's something worth doing. I mean, everybody should have a go. If you if you're really feeling quite green fingered, it's it's quite uh, quite a challenge. But actually, once you've done it, you probably won't want to do it again. To be honest with you, but it's uh, it's great fun. Brilliant. Thanks, Chris. So our Christmas trees arrived well last week, wasn't it, Chris? Mm, um, very nice too. I, I love the smell. I think yes. when you go into the seasonal tunnel and all the fresh Christmas trees mm. have just come out, that coniferous smell or pine pine smell is it? I, I yeah, it's, 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 it's coniferous. Yes, I say a coniferous smell, isn't a it? Sprucy smell. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a lovely smell, isn't yeah, it? And yeah. traditionally, I think is it the start of Advent. Yeah, the first of Advent, which is uh, which has just come come and gone. Actually, twenty eighth of November. So that, that's yeah. when you're meant to put your tree up and mm. decorate it, and then yeah. obviously get it down by the twelfth, and um, then the ghoulies won't get you. Indeed, twelfth night. It's a bit debatable. Is it, is it the fifth or the sixth of January? Oh, it was always a bit of a debate in the, in the day <laughs> household. Yes, I know. Yeah, Zin, do you get it down the day before, or do you have to get it down but on the day? On the day. Of, yeah. I know. Yes, it's a bit fraught, but uh, no, you're quite right. And of course, it's the um, it's the noble fir and the Nordsman, which of course are so popular now isn't it with their obviously their good needle retention yeah because i mean personally mm. i i know it's a bit of a faff because mm. um i mean Nord, I, I always have a nordman mm-hmm. and as much as they're meant to be better for not dropping needles they still drop needles don't they and they do yes I mean, yeah. it, they always say so it gives you a christmas tree a chop the bottom inch is mm. it mm-hmm. uh, chop the bottom inch off and that's then right give it a soak in a bucket for a couple of hours similar to what you do with Berry hedging, exactly. I suppose, yeah. Yeah. or a cut flower, maybe, Indeed. isn't it? Yes, yeah. yeah, conditioning, aren't you? You're conditioning yeah. the stem that gets some more water into the yeah. stem, and then obviously mm-hmm. in it goes. But they don't generally last in perfect condition, do they? Until the end of the month, I think so. Yeah, I think it's all about temperature, isn't it? We often say, you know, keep them away from obviously direct heat, so from you know, keep away from your radiator anywhere you've got an open fire for obvious, uh, you know, safety reasons more than anything. Yeah, and uh, yes, and if you can buy a, a tree stand, a lot of these tree stands now have nice water reservoirs, so something you know worth you know, bearing in mind if you are investing in a new stand, make sure it's got a, a decent uh, good reservoir. reservoir. Yeah, it yeah. always amuses me how much they actually drink. Mm. Some years you get a tree and it's really thirsty which i'm guessing <laughs> probably means they're fresher cut than the ones that just don't take any water Possibly. up at all because they've yeah. already died but equally something that we've been doing here for the last couple of years now is supporting a local charity called mm. ripple africa what we do is we give 50 pence for every tree that we sell or cut tree that we sell towards ripple africa's charity that goes on to basically Help plant another tree in Malawi, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Such a yeah, such a, a groundbreaking uh, charity, and uh, yes, yeah, certainly doing some so much good to, to help the, with the deforestation over in the in that part of the world too. 
Yeah, and in today's show we've got Pam Haig from Ripple Africa just to give us a little bit of an introduction into what they do. And like we say, we we support them. And if you're not local to us and not buying your Christmas tree from us, then by all means get on their website and have a look and see if it's something that you can help support as well. So with us today from Ripple Africa is Pam Haig. How are you doing today, Pam? Absolutely fine, thanks. I'm over in Malawi and it's very hot over here, so um, <laughs> I wow. understand it's a little bit cooler where you are. Yes, we had a frost this morning, and uh, how many Celsius are you having to deal with today? I think it's about 34 at the moment. Oh, and is the sun shining and <laughs> no clouds in the sky as well, I bet? Absolutely, absolutely, it's glorious. But um, I'm, I'm sitting in my office, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm out of the direct sunlight, fortunately, because I do burn quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And I understand you've got a view of Lake Malawi. Yes, I have. It's, uh, it's beautiful. Where, where we're based is right on the shores of Lake Malawi in the north of the country. And um, it, it is rather beautiful. Um, we do swim in there sort of uh, usually twice a day when we can. Um, okay. But it, it does change a lot. Sometimes it's very calm. Sometimes it's very rough. It's very much like the sea. It looks like the sea, but obviously it's a freshwater lake. So a little bit unusual. It's a big old lake, isn't it? It certainly is. It's the ninth largest freshwater lake in the world. And um, it's known as the Calendar Lake because it's uh, approximately 365 miles long. Um, okay. At its widest point, it's 52 miles wide. And yep. it has 12 rivers that feed it. So, you know, as you can see, it, it, it's like a sea, really. It's just not salty. <laughs> okay, so that's a good app name for it as well. So can you tell us a little bit about Ripple App for Africa and what you guys do? Yeah, sure. My name's Pam and I'm the UK General Manager and I joined Ripple Africa about seven and a half years ago now. But Ripple Africa has been going since 2003 um, and it was founded by a couple from Buckingham called um, Jeff and Liz Ferber. Yep. And uh, it, it was founded really just by chance. They took a wrong turn when they were on holiday, um, ended up uh, sort of falling in love with the place. And the charity was started as a consequence of that. So uh, I feel very fortunate that they've made that wrong turn. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here now. Mm, excellent. We started off just helping the local community. The, the property that we are um, based in uh, was actually owned by somebody who started a local charity volunteering in local schools. So they were inviting teachers and health visitors to come over and sort of support the local schools and health centres. And a condition of us actually having this um, this location was that we carried on with that work. So that's why the charity was set up. And we started off very sort of low-key, just doing the same type of thing. But as we got to know the local community better, we realised that um, the problems that Malawi faces are huge and they're much wider spread than just sort of supporting a few local schools. I mean, we still do a lot of local support, but we've spread now into many more environmental projects which, which cover vast areas of Malawi. So we've sort of we've moved a little bit away from our initial uh, plan, but um, I think we're making a huge difference to the country, which is, which is really good to see. Excellent. Yes, Pam, and on the on the subject of the, the sort of conservation and the tree planting, can you sort of sort of sort of set the scene with the the trees you're putting in to the the local community? Yeah, sure. We um one of the big problems that we realised Malawi was facing was deforestation. I mean, back in the sort of seventies and eighties, um, most of Malawi was covered by by forested areas, but gradually, as the population has grown and the population is growing at three percent per annum. Um, it's putting more and more pressure on the natural resources. 
And as I think about 95% of people still use wood for cooking, so they cook on three stone fires, which use sort of vast amounts of firewood. People have been cutting down the forest and also cutting it down for farmland. So, you know, the trouble is once you cut down an existing tree, which has spent 50 years growing, it's quite difficult <laughs> to actually replace it. So we, we've combined our tree planting project with a fuel-efficient cook stove project, which burns only a third of the amount of wood of, of the traditional three-stone fire, and also with forest conservation. So we're helping communities that live around the forested areas to actually conserve the remaining forest, to stop people chopping the trees down, and to allow natural regeneration to take place. So it's sort of a bit of a mixture, but you know we feel that the three projects together work really well to sort of tackle the the big problem of deforestation in Malawi. Yes, so up up to now, we've planted. I think we started tree planting in 2004, and we've planted over 17 million trees. Um, which is quite an achievement, really. Gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> and the way, the way, yeah, the way we work is at the moment what we're doing is we're working with farmers and community groups who've got land that they want to grow the trees on. So we're not planting huge plantations. We're helping individual farmers and groups to plant smaller areas of trees that they can eventually make money out of by chopping them down and selling them for either firewood or for um, building timber because you're not going to sort of do away with Malawi's need for those things but we're hoping that by giving a financial incentive to people they will care for the trees and therefore help them grow and we're doing a sort of continuous program of, of working with farmers over several years so that they, they have a, an ongoing supply of, um, of, the, of the wood in the future. Wow, that, 17 million trees, that's an awful, Amazing. that's a huge area, isn't it? That's brilliant. And when you're planting these trees, Pam, are you planting them sort of in corridors or going to specific areas that have been have got big deforestation problems, or how does that work? Yeah, the way we work is we're obviously um, working in areas where there has been major deforestation, but we're working with individual farmers or community groups. So they they have a certain area that they have available to plant, and often it's scrubland that's not really being used for anything else. Um, and we will then work with them to assess how many trees we can eventually help them to plant out in that area, and then that's the number of seedlings they get. So it's not sort of formal corridors, but it is smaller plots in lots and lots of different areas. So we're working, I think, with about 4,500 different um, groups, you know, community groups and farmers. Yep. Um, around the, the areas of the worst deforestation. And, you know, by, by sort of donating to our tree planting project, we, we plant one tree, but the money that you give us also allows us to save two other trees through our forest conservation project. So it's a sort of, you know, multi, multifunctional <laughs> project, if you like. Um, because if you can stop people chopping down the existing forest, then, then the areas that have been deforested are allowed to naturally regenerate, um, which I think is, is probably the best way for, for things to happen. Because if we were planting um, indigenous trees, we, we plant mainly pine and eucalyptus because they're actually fast growing. And we do a certain number of indigenous varieties as well, and also um, fruit trees. But the, um, we're looking for trees that will grow quickly and will grow straight because those have got an economic value for farmers. And therefore, yep. you know, there's more incentive for them to prepare for them well. So, you know, that that tends to be the way we work. Okay. And so, yeah, the tree, so you're planting essentially trees that will then go on to make timber for building houses more than timber for firewood? Or is that 
So the, the indigenous well, the, ones the, are growing for firewood and uh, pines, and they're, they're for more. No, we, stru- we've got we've got yeah, we've got a mixture of trees. I mean, we grow fast-growing um, varieties like Senecia maya, which um, can be coppiced for firewood. And in fact, the the particular type of pine that we're planting mainly can also be coppiced. So the the, the branches can be cut off as as the tree is growing, and those those can then be used for firewood. So it's sort of stopping you know sort of existing trees being killed. The firewood, you know, we're, yeah. we're still having a live tree, but we're also providing the firewood that people need, which is brilliant. That's great. And in the areas that you've done the smaller plantings and you know, forests, have you seen a change in the biodiversity and the natural sort of wildlife in those areas yet, or is it still too early to tell? Do you think it's a bit early to tell? I mean, one of the things that we have tried to encourage people to do is to um, introduce beekeeping as well, because. Um, beekeeping is a way of protecting the, the the trees from people coming to chop them down for firewood because bees do put people off if they're buzzing around, and also it, it sort of enables them to um, to sort of have another source of income, which is honey. Yep. Um, but it's a bit early to tell whether it's really made a huge difference to to the biodiversity in general. That's not something that we've really had had the time or the or the funding to to assess at the moment. But um, hopefully, that's something we can perhaps look at in the future. Excellent. Well, you'd imagine just by the very nature of sort of planting trees and giving nature something to live on that by default you're going to be encouraging the sort of yeah. pests and insects and what have you to be getting something to live on. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Okay, Pam. One quite question I'd like to ask is what what do you think are the major benefits of all the the work you're carrying out i mean obviously the tree planting we've, we've heard is obviously good for the for the local community but the uh, the other conservation areas ha- have you seen um that work well within the within the the, the areas well we've, we've got um certainly with the cook stove project we've got forty seven thousand households now using the fuel efficient cook stove and it's it's made out a lot a lot of cook stoves that are um introduced into areas are, are sort of made from metal or or, or you know, sort of have to be purchased by the local community. And where we tend to work is a very poor rural area, so people just can't afford to buy anything. So our cook stove is made out of mud, um, which is freely available to everybody. So basically we we work with the householders to sort of make mud bricks, which we then teach them how to actually put together into the cook stove, and it's smeared with mud on the outside. And the traditional kitchens are outdoor kitchens, and um, they're able to relay the floor and redo the cook stove as a sort of monthly maintenance job which which they do which keeps the cook stove working well and it basically uses only a third of the amount of wood um, and also produces a lot less smoke and smoke inhalation is one of the biggest killers um, worldwide for people you know sort of living in rural areas like ours so there are big health benefits in in that there are also sort of economic benefits in terms of the, the being able to sell the wood for trees eventually. And also, I did ask um, one of our forest conservation um, chairs, because we, we work with local communities and we sort of encourage them to form committees to, um, to sort of care for their forests. And I asked um, this, this one chap, I said, you know, why, why are you on this forest conservation committee? And he said, well, when we go down to the south of the country to visit relatives, which is often at a funeral, he said there were 100 of us trying to shelter from the sun or the rain under one tree. And he mm. said, I don't want that to happen in my area. And then you realise what the scale of the problem is. You know, it, it is horrendous. And when you fly into Lilongwe, which is the, the capital and where the main airport is, 
as you're flying in, you can see, you know, one tree here, one tree there, one tree somewhere else. You know, it's it's very, very bleak. Um, and the areas that we're in and the areas that we're trying to protect are so stunningly beautiful, um, you know, that people here want to keep their trees <laughs> and they're very keen to sort of take part in the project because they realise the value of them. And obviously it has a value in terms of climate and, you know, sort of sheltering people from, you know, protecting people from rainfall and from flooding. Um, you know, if you've got trees there, they, they play a huge part in, in keeping people sort of safe, really. <laughs> So, you know, I I think lots of benefits. And I mean, like with all our projects, you know, the the key thing we do is educate people. And it's very, it's very interesting. I mean, just to talk about one of our other conservation projects, which is our fish conservation project, we discovered that people were using mosquito nets, which are donated by people with the best of intentions to stop people getting malaria. But the fishermen were using them to catch baby fish. And what they didn't realise, they thought that the fish they were catching was a completely different species from the larger fish that they really wanted to catch. And they were catching them in their hundreds of thousands. And of course, then there are no baby fish to grow up and become the big fish that they wanted. So, you know, the number of fish in the lake was declining. And when we sort of pointed out to them that actually you're catching the fish that can go on to sort of produce 300 young each, and that's going to keep increasing the number of fish in the lake for, for your children and for your grandchildren... They are now protecting those breeding areas and we're stopping people from using mosquito nets. So it's very much about educating the community, working closely with the community. And that's one of the strengths that we have, I think. You know, all of our projects arise because we've got to know people, we understand their problems, we help them to come up with very easy and simple solutions to the problems which is why I think they work so well. <laughs> you know, it's, it's things that people want rather than things that, you know, sort of we come in and we say we think they want. You know, we, we know that the projects are good because they've asked us for them. So as many of you may know, in the last couple of years, we've been supporting Ripple by, uh, if you buy a Christmas tree or if you buy your cut Christmas tree from us, we donate 50p of the purchase price towards Ripple Africa. And that obviously goes on to help them plant another tree out in Africa. But Pam, where does the majority of your funding come from and where are the greatest sources of income for you as a charity? Well, it's an interesting question because I mean, most charities face the same problem with fundraising. And, um, you know, we're, we're having to sort of look at lots of different ways of getting money in. And the, the fact that you're supporting our tree planting project is absolutely fantastic. And we're incredibly grateful to people who are, who are sort of helping you, helping us to do this. Um, basically, it's a mixture of we, we get grants from sort of trusts and foundations. And that's very much what I spend a lot of my time doing, which is applying to to large funders for money, but we're increasingly trying to attract more funding from corporate donors because most corporates, are, you know, companies are now looking to to do something good with their money as well as sort of uh, making profits for themselves. And we're finding more and more people are keen to get involved with charities, particularly environmental charities like ours. And we've uh, we've got quite a few quite loyal um, companies who are supporting us in that way. And then also individuals. You know, we've got a lot of um, individuals who donate monthly towards 
either our preschools that we run or to, to help us build new school buildings for the primary schools um, or to, to help with our environmental projects as well. So it's a real mixture. And, um, you know, the, the great thing about um, working with people like yourselves is it's helping us to get the message out there that we exist because I think a lot of people don't realise we're here and they don't realise we're based in Buckingham. Um, and so it's, it's really brilliant that um, the message is getting out to people. And we just encourage anybody who's interested at all in what we do to come onto our website, which is www.rippleafrica.org, and have a look at what we do and see whether they might be interested in helping us as well. And, you know, the more the merrier, really. It's lovely. We're like a big family. All our supporters are like a family, and we like to keep in touch with people. So, um, really, that's, um, that's, that's one of the really nice things about uh, working with people. Hmm. Yeah, because it's a, it's a really good website as well. It's nice and colourful and um, tells, I mean, that's where I've learnt all about you guys. And yeah, I mean, obviously, as a garden centre each year, we, we like to support a charity that's um, relevant to our customers. And obviously, you're I found it when I was searching a couple of years ago, we came across you guys and um, I had no idea you were based in Buckingham. But by, from my understanding, you've got a relatively small office in Buckingham on the industrial estate, but the majority, you've got a big old workforce out, out there in Malawi, haven't you? We certainly have. We've got um, nearly 150 staff out here, all, all local Malawian people that we've recruited and we've worked with over the years. And um, they're like my family. And this is the first time I've been able to see them all, well, not all of them, <laughs> some of them, um, in the last two years. And it's just wonderful to be back here. Um, normally, we're, we're in um, Buckingham um, for the bulk of the year, but we try and get out here at least twice a year to sort of meet with the uh, the managers that we're working with here and to, you know, make sure the projects are going well and to get reports back for our donors. So um, it's it's brilliant to be here. Excellent. So we'd encourage our customers to get onto rippleafrica.org and maybe learn a bit more about you. And thank you very much for your time today, Pam. It's been great talking with you. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. It's been it's been fun talking to you. I love talking about what we do because I'm just so passionate about it. So it's lovely to have an opportunity. Thanks so much. Thanks, Pam. Thank you. So in the news this week, I noticed gene editing and mm. the fact that we're going to be potentially doing something to genes in plants as we're now out of Brexit. I mean, do you know anything about this, Chris? No. Do you understand what it's all about? I, I don't, Peter. It's a bit of a new territory for me, and perhaps it might need a little bit of further investigation. Definitely. I'm guessing they're sort of taking bits out of the DNA, but like like you, I, I really don't know much about it. But yeah. equally, I, mm. I also noticed that the first Bramley yes. apple tree is not doing well, is yeah, it? Yeah, talking about genes, um, this is the original uh, Bramley, as you say, over down in Nottinghamshire. Um, and of course, it's been around for 200 years, this tree. And of okay. course, as, and as far as gardeners are concerned, certainly if you, you're, you, know, you buy your, your apple trees, you're probably all familiar with the Bramley in the catalogues. We, we sell it, but you can also buy the variant called Bramley Original. Is that different then? It is. So, that, so the, the Bramley Original, does that stem from this one up in Nottinghamshire? And that's the, other the link. one is. Ah, yeah. Okay. So genetically, it's from that tree. So obviously, the more you, you, you graft, you effectively dilute or you weaken the original variety. Right. So the whole so the whole idea of introducing the original uh, uh, cyan wood, the original uh, material from this tree, was to reintroduce better quality Bramleys into commerce. Okay, that's interesting because I'd always assumed that sort of you graft a 
tree and sort of cut a bit of the the stem off and stick it to a new it, rootstock and off you go but yeah i suppose if you're doing that time and time and time again eventually there is a chance that the genetics change isn't there yeah and, and i think it's because you're effectively cloning you you will have a, a slight change and of course just to reintroduce uh, original stock basically freshens up and reinvigorates that that stock so yeah the, the brownie unfortunately it's suffering from all sorts of things honey fungus i think they were saying in the the report in in garden news uh, magazine that uh, half of it that uh, they did a radar study back in 2019 and half the root system was effectively alive but the other half was dead oh so it's it's struggling but let's face it for gardeners i mean bramley is synonymous with a, obviously a really good cooking apple yep. but um yeah it is going to be a shame when it finally goes but at least we've got the uh, the, the the genetics if you like now in, in new oh, plants good. yeah so i suppose the only way to actually keep it as an original would that be through like micro propagation mm. and they need to get some more genetics off the original before it dies and then keep that as a a tree on its own not grown on a foreign rootstock and to populate repopulate it or repropagate yeah, it that that's, way that's right i mean nottingham uh, trent university have do quite a lot of work with the, the particular tree so i suspect yeah micro propagation is another option to actually you know continue Keep it in its original it, form its for, for the for the time for, you know for the foreseeable future but i think unfortunately the clock is ticking on the original Bramley, which is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit sad. That is very sad. But equally, isn't it interesting how technology is getting mm. into gardening? I mean, you and I think of ourselves as simple people, maybe. And, <laughs> it is. and now we're doing these podcasts and micro-propagation. It's brilliant, it? is isn't fantastic. It? Yes, Peter. So we've been chatting about propagation as far as uh, increasing our fruit trees. But, of course, now is a great time to start doing some hardwood cuttings in the garden. And this means that we can propagate so many popular, uh, shrubs, you know things like your doitsias, your uh, your dogwoods, um, okay, and your ribes, your flowering currants. Uh, obviously, your roses. I mean, roses actually propagate really well from hardwood cuttings, right? Um, so the process is really quite straightforward. You need to find sort of pencil thickness stems, yep. around about nine inches long, twenty three centimeters. And then you would basically make sure you can, you can recognise the top and the bottom of the cutting you've made. So I always cut the bottom of the cutting nice and straight. So yep. just below a node, that's where your leaves would have been this year. And then to identify the top, just make a little slant cut. So slant cut at the top, cross the bottom nice and straight for the, for the, for the base of the cutting. And then you can take these into the greenhouse and you get yourself a nice terracotta pot with some nice gritty compost. And insert a third of the stem. So basically, you're going to be burying six inches, uh, 15 centimetres below the compost and leaving three, yes, the, 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 the third of the, the plant above. So you've got a, a really good amount of. So the majority of the stick mm. is actually in the soil. That's right, yeah. Wow. So, yeah. yeah, you don't. The other way around to softwood cuttings then. Yeah, almost, yes, yeah, almost, yeah. So, mm-hmm. and if you haven't got, yeah, if you haven't got a greenhouse or um, a coal frame to do that, then you can find a little bit of space in the garden, create a little nursery bed, work some gritty compost into your soil, and then just insert them in a nice straight row, put a little label to identify what you've put in there, because you'll forget, because gardeners do. And then off, off you go. And they will have. Hopefully by uh, by the spring rooted, but it's probably going to be this time next year, so uh, late November, early December, before you can then lift them and then move them on to, to, to the rest of the garden or to pot them on if you, if you wish. 
Okay, and how far apart would you plant these cuttings? Because presumably you need to do sort of three or four of each variety just in case they don't all take. Oh yeah, I'd, I would do. I would do half a dozen of each just to be on the safe side. I mean, your you, you take rate should be probably 80 percent. I would have hoped. Um, okay. And then mm-hmm. spacing wise, in a, in a terracotta pot, probably a couple of inches apart because you're growing them quite intense, intensely. Yep. Or in the the open board, probably three or four inches apart in a nice row. But okay. things like dog dogwood um, or your hazels, as we mentioned there are uh, things like um you know, buddleias i mean they root really well at this time of the year as well right. for that and of course all your um all your spring flowering shrubs so your philadelphus your mock orange and it's a really good way of, of you know bulking up your plants especially if you've got a favorite in the garden which is perhaps getting towards the end of its end of its life yes. yeah, yeah. I've, I've never done a hardwood cutting so mm. thanks for that and would you use a um, rooting compound or rooting gel i have to say no i would i'd let nature do it for you because these are hardwood the the um i think for softwood cuttings i think rooting powders and and, and gels and things are very good but for actual uh, this the time of year, not, necessary. not necessary as long as the cut's nice and clean and obviously it's nice and straight and it's um it's not damp. And obviously, if you if pushing into nicely worked soil, obviously if you're going to be pushing into the soil and it's it's going to be stony and and uh, obviously it's going to be poor for the for the cutting to go in, then you might obviously damage the base. So make sure that the soil is workable and friable. Hence, that's why growing them in a nice terracotta pot in gritty compost is my that's your my, preferred my, my go-to way. Yes. Okay, but you uh, you wouldn't use like a dibber and jab a big hole in. I mean, you could do, or you could use a pencil. Yeah, even good old gardener's dibber or a good pencil if you're feeling as though the the the, the soil might be uh, you know restrictive in some way. But uh, generally, they, 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 they are hardwood. They shouldn't shouldn't need to. And the the good thing is, of course, you're going to get some nice new plants around about a year's time. Okay, and what about watering through the winter? Do you need to worry about that that much, or just hope nature? Gives you enough water and <laughs> yeah. If, if they're in a pot, I'd give the the, the the pot a really good soak um, after you put it, so the water is running through the pot, so the, the soil is at sort of maximum you know saturation. But then I'd probably keep it on the drier side. Yeah, you know, just giving it a little bit of water, perhaps uh, in a month's time, just just checking over, and then as soon as in the spring you start to see some growth, then obviously increase the water as as growth uh, you know hastens as well. So, but mm-hmm. in the outside, you shouldn't really need to do much in the way of watering. The the roots will find the find the moisture. Okay, and so what about an opaque carrier bag over the top? Are we going to bother with that or... In not. this instance, no, we we don't. Uh, perfect for your for your, your your cuttings you're taking in the, in the way you've got warmth and you're trying to create the humidity. But these basically are they've got no leaves on, so they're just sticks. So, so you, you see, want the air movement the, then? You most definitely, the, yeah. You don't want them to get too much moisture around the top. Correct. Yes. Excellent. Okay, well, I might give that one a go then. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure. There's another job I think is always worth reminding people to do is clearing out their bird baths of ice. Mm. Um, because obviously if it's a really hard winter and all the lakes around you and the canals and rivers are uh, sort of frozen, the birds really struggle to find natural sources of water. And I can always remember my grandmother used to religiously take a sort of hot water out from the kettle in the kitchen out to her bird bath and defrost her mm. bird baths and it was amazing the mm. she was, had loads of bird, loads of birds feeding in the garden but they also used to love going in for a, a quick drink of the the bird bath and you think it was so simple but yeah obviously important to do but and equally defrosting ice you know, holes in your pond mm-hmm. take the either the saucepan out or move the football off the surface so that again a bit of gaseous exchange can happen and that obviously gives life to lots and lots of uh, wildlife mm. and, you know, and the fish underneath yeah so yeah peter I quite agree um yeah 
bird baths are essential. Uh, of, of course, I mean, especially if we're giving our birds so much feed at this time of the year, we're putting those. Yeah, uh, they need a bit of no, water to but, yeah, wash it all, it all down, down with. Yeah, don't all they? that protein and from the seeds and the uh, the nuts and of course the the fat balls too. But another little job as well, of course, is the effects of, of frost on a lot of our vegetables at this time of the year. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I I'm not a massive Brussels sprouts fan. However, over Maybe the not. I'm not no. Although I had some actually last night. Um, believe it or not, so I, I can't say that. But no, I yeah I, I yeah. And the reason I, I sort of like them now is that I think going back to this sort of genetic modifications, they have got sweeter over the years. Most definitely, yeah. Mm. I know. I watched a program a year or so ago that was touching on this very subject and mm. the fact that. The seeds that we're growing today are nothing like the ones that we used to grow 20, 30, 40 years ago. And the bitterness has been, I won't say totally bred out of them, but it certainly has, um, they're a lot milder in flavour now. And I know my grandfather was always a proponent of never pull your Brussels up until they've had a good frosting. And Mm. thankfully... Back in the sort of 20, 30, 40 years ago, we did get some really hard frost, didn't we? And uh, I can remember eating loads of Brussels sprouts with him. But uh, I think from my point of view, I love a roast Brussels sprout. Brussels sprouts roasted with some nuts in in the mm. oven are yes. delicious. I, I'm not saying the ones that have been boiled for three hours <laughs> oh, are gosh, no. any good. I definitely don't like those. But certainly roasted ones, I do like a good Brussels and ha- sprout. Yeah, mm. and at Christmas, yeah. So I was, I was running up to Christmas, yeah, a bit of pancetta maybe as well with them mm. was, was good as well. But it's interesting, isn't it? Um, we're talking about the fact that breeding has, has introduced a little bit of uh, sweetness into them. But, of course, temperature and frost have an effect on the the starch content of yep. a lot of vegetables, especially the likes of parsnips. So hence, that's why we tend to leave the parsnips in the soil through the okay. winter. And we go out, uh, hopefully it's not too frosty. We, we don't need a, a pickaxe or anything to actually lift, but we can actually lift where the the, uh, the action of the frost has broken that starch down into sugars. And, and that makes the parsnips sweeter, doesn't that's it? That's it, yeah. So it is key. So maybe with global warming and all the changes in our climate, maybe that's one thing, maybe the plant breeders are going to have to do is perhaps put more sweetness into those things which would naturally have happened through the you know the, the, the frost yes interesting and another little tip i've heard with parsnips chris is after mm. you've had a good a couple of good frosts and they've obviously started to sweeten up mm. if you're leaving them in the ground to go and put some straw over the top of them which just helps insulate them a little bit so if you're getting feeling hungry and you need to go and dig some parsnips <laughs> up yeah. and it's been a frosty in the evening it does protect them a little bit uh, after they've had the first initial frost to sweeten them to be able to dig them up more easily that sounds good it sounds like um, i think the the term when i was going years ago when i was doing my horticultural qualification the, the thing called clamping where you do that with things like carrots and potatoes and you can actually put straw around those and and basically lift them and use it as a as a, as a sort of temporary store Right. So, okay. Uh, but of course, using the straw, and so you can access your crop easily. Obviously, we've, we've moved on a little bit as well. But I think with carrots, particularly, uh, no, I mean, still. yeah, they are quite difficult to, to lift at the best of times, aren't they? Well, certainly mine can be. Um, yeah. So anything which is going to ease the, the, the issue and make them more accessible in those colder days. Um, yeah, would be so more, if you've more got some straw lying around that mm. you need to get rid of, well, I, I guess it's a good mulch as well in the sense of it breaks down and it helps improve the soil the next year anyway, doesn't it? Yeah, potentially, yes.
And all this talk of vegetables, Crystal. Um, are there any jobs we should be thinking about doing at the moment in the garden? Right, Peter. I mean, the die-hard gardeners. Um, and you know, why not? If you've got the time, you know, Boxing Day. You know, you might want a bit of a break, a bit of a an exercise break after all that indulgence uh, on Christmas Day. Something to help clear the stomach. What <laughs> yeah. are you going to have us doing this? Yeah, this well, month, it's, it's actually be, it's going to be quite luxurious. Actually, if you've got a, a greenhouse or a uh, you know a port somewhere protected, you can actually get on with so your onions for okay. next year uh, exhibition onions that would be but normal good old uh, you know dinner plate onions perfectly fine so get yourself some good seed have those ready and yeah that's the traditional job for a boxing day so why not keep up at the tradition if you're planning to grow onions this year this coming year perfect opportunity and like you say it gets you away from the telly and up and out and it does um, yes. it gets a bit of exercise and movement going doesn't it so it's always good yeah you can enjoy the rest of your garden and just catch up on those other jobs maybe just topping up the bird feeders and making sure that water's in the in the the bird baths yeah because last month we we're talking about um the fact your new toy oh and, yes um, mm. we had a little thank you didn't we, we Chris, did. from one of our listeners i was really pleased to see that yes yes so, so a bit of a shout out to, to francis and uh yes she, she did after listening to the podcast she went out and uh, invested in one of the the leaf uh, blower stroke mulches However, on the email, she said that, um, yes, her husband might well be after me now. So <laughs> I'm <laughs> sorry about that. Maybe she spent a few pounds on it, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> he it, wasn't expecting that. But no, no, I mean, I love mine. And yes. Uh, you're getting I on well mine. with yours still? Yes, yeah, no, yes it's, it's going to have an outing just before Christmas just to do a, a final sweep. But I've filled up one and a half um, compost bins. So I'm really pleased with me, with me mulch, uh, mulching uh, leaves this year. I mean, leaf mold production hopefully will be we're good for, for 2000, well, 2020. Yeah, 2022. And uh, like you say, and, uh, I mean, historically, I know leaf mould mm. is meant to make some of the best compost. So yep. we'll see how it turns out. It'll yes. be interesting to find out next year, won't it? And with it being Christmas now, I guess mm. um, we'll have to start thinking about what we're going to put into next year's podcast, aren't we, Chris? So Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you'd like to email us in with any topics you want covering, we'd be so pleased to hear from you. And as always, please tell your friends about the podcast if you are enjoying it, because we need to get this out to as many people as possible. So mm. if you're seeing your relatives and you know they're into gardening, give us a plug if you can, please, because it'll help us make sure that we've got enough listeners to make it worthwhile us doing this again for another few seasons. Yeah, most definitely, Peter. I mean, uh, yeah, any subject matter, and obviously any comments about our, our previous podcast. I mean, if you're doing a little bit of uh, uh, archiving through what we've done over the last uh, sort of nine, nine months or so, I mean, we've covered potatoes, orchids, we've looked at uh, bedding plants, roses. I mean, there might be something there, a subject matter which you might, might want to expand or something, something we haven't covered, so please do that. And of course, later Later this month, uh, we're going to be joined by Jane uh, Perone, who's a houseplant enthusiast known for her hugely popular podcast, On the Shelf. So I'm really looking forward to, mm, to chatting to her. That's going to be a good one, isn't yes. it? I mean, another podcaster. We've not interviewed a podcaster. No. I mean, today we interviewed someone in Malawi, which yeah. was 
my first call to Malawi ever. And <laughs> that was I really enjoyed. But yeah, yeah, talking to Jane, I'm really looking forward to. And yeah. I think my houseplant sort of collection may well need to be expanded next year because um, the orchids, as well as they're doing, possibly need some friends. And uh, okay. uh, I might, I think I might get it branch out into a fern or something. Oh next right, year. Well, we'll have to ask Jane all about uh, indoor ferns and see which ones are, are good for us. But no, I'm really looking forward. For, you know, Jane is is well known in the uh, the podcast world for her uh, information informative chat and, and all the, the sort of guests she's she's spoken to so i'm sure we'll glean lots of wonderful advice and information uh, later Excellent. maybe she can even give us some tips on how to actually make a podcast or oh something like that. hey that would be good that would be, be good it was really helpful to us <laughs> wouldn't it <laughs> excellent okay well we'll have that to look forward to and in our next episode, we've also got our first ever competition, haven't we, Chris? We have, yes, to win one of two copies of David Dominey's book, My Houseplant Changed My Life. Excellent. I'm looking forward to having a look through that. Yeah, it's good. It's a, it's a nice read, Peter. Well, that's brilliant, isn't it? So another month's jobs to go and do. And or, or maybe not. <laughs> or maybe not, yeah. But it doesn't sound like we've got too much no. to do this uh, no. this month, Chris. So thank you very much uh, for another show and not giving me too many jobs to do. <laughs> Pleasure, Peter. Thank you. Cheers, Chris. Cheers. Today's show was brought to you by Buckingham Garden Centre and Nurseries. The show was hosted by Chris Day and Peter Brown. The show was produced by Peter Brown. And our thanks to Chilton Music Therapy for providing the music. Thanks for listening. At Chilton Music Therapy, we want everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives. From parents and their premature babies in hospital, to grandparents with dementia. We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across England. We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals and hospices. Find out more at chilternmusictherapy.co.uk.